0: First of all, a word of thanks to the fathers uh, for this um, blessed invitation to be with you all in this Nahda of St. Mary. Uh, As you can see on the screen there, the topic is joy. Now, Abuna Mark told me that a few days ago, he gave uh, a similar topic, uh, and I offered to change the topic, and he said, no, just keep it the same, and hopefully people won't uh, remember either one of us of what we said. But I promise you that the word joy here, uh, uh, or I promise to deliver some joy because I hope not to go very long uh, during this this talk. As you can see at the bottom of the word joy, it says the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now I don't know if any of the other speakers mentioned this, but in the Bible it clearly says, it does not say the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It says the fruit of the Holy Spirit. There is one fruit. And that fruit is comprised of a lot of things love, joy, uh, kindness, self control, etc., etc. It's like when you buy a car or anything, you don't buy a part, you don't buy the brakes, you don't buy the transmission, you don't buy the seats, you buy the whole car. The Holy Spirit has all these fruits in it, but it's combined as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. As with any fruit, though, it doesn't just grow by itself. No fruit grows by itself. Either it has to be planted first, and after it's planted, it has to be taken care of. It's not going to grow by itself. It needs to be nourished. It needs to be cultivated. You need to put fertilizer. You need to make sure it has sunlight. You need to make sure it's watered, etc., etc. All these things make the fruit grow. If you plant a seed and the tree grows and it doesn't produce fruit, it's a useless tree. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is in us, Can only come if it's nourished if it's cultivated if it's watered and how does that happen well we have a beautiful parable that's mentioned in the gospels twice the parable of the sower now if you've ever heard any of me uh, heard me speak before you know that i'm very much into trivia questions biblical trivia and church trivia and so forth so does anybody know when do we read the parable of the sower during the liturgical calendar of our church. I'll give you a hint. We read the same story. It's two different Gospels, but we read the same story, the same parable, two Sundays in a row. Does anybody know what time of the year we read this? It's right before the Advent, sorry. It's right before the Advent fast, right before we start the advent fast we read this story the parable twice now I bring this up now because if you plant a seed and you expect fruits to come out of that seed that tree that plant and you plant it in bad soil it's not going to grow you're not going to have very good fruit so part of it depends on us we all receive the Holy Spirit each and every one of us in this church received the Holy Spirit when we are baptized and during the crispation when we receive the and the Holy Spirit. What have we done with that Holy Spirit? Is that Holy Spirit now just dry and not rich soil with nutrients and provided with sunlight and water? Or is that soil being nourished and refreshed on a regular basis so that the Holy Spirit which is dwelling in us can bring forth fruit? So much of it depends on us. God gave us through the church, the Holy Spirit, what are we doing with it? And what kind of soil is that, is that fruit gonna come from? Now the word joy and the word happiness, unfortunately, people sometimes think they're synonymous. Actually, they're not. They mean similar things, and sometimes we use them interchangeably. But when it comes to discussing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, We have to make sure we understand the difference. Interestingly, the word happiness appears in the Bible approximately 10 times. The word joy appears in the Bible 430 times. So even the Bible is trying to teach us there's a difference. Obviously, joy is much more important. When it comes to our spiritual lives, it's not happiness doesn't mean that we can't be happy. We can be happy. In fact, there are many reasons to be happy, and God blesses us all the time with things that make us happy. But the true meaning of the gift of the Holy Spirit is not happiness, it's joy. See, the difference is happiness depends on things happening around you. Things that happen here on Earth. Success on Earth, buying something, some sort of a reward is connected to it that brings me happiness. And and happiness is also short-lived because it's related to a specific event. In fact, the word... I think I lost the... uh, The word happiness has the word hap in it, H-A-P. And in Old English, the Old, Old English back in England, Hap means fortunate or lucky. So when something happens, and you're fortunate to have that thing happen, it brings you happiness. Joy doesn't depend on happiness, on happenings. Joy depends on God, not on things that are happening to us. It is something that is much, much longer lasting and much, much deeper and much, much more spiritual than happiness. Happiness, you can look at it as earthly. Joy is spiritual. And that's why it's considered one of the fruits of the Holy spirit. Now when we talk about joy, we can talk about so many different kinds of joy. All spiritual. All. We don't have time, of course, to talk about all the different kinds. So we're going to focus on three. Three kinds of joy. The three types of joy. The joy of repentance, which sounds kind of strange, but you can have joy in repentance. The joy of suffering, which sounds even stranger, but we're going to talk about the joy of suffering. And most importantly, the joy of salvation. The joy of repentance, the joy of suffering, and the joy of salvation. Each of those things gives us joy. Repentance gives us joy. Suffering gives us joy, and salvation gives us joy. We all know Psalm 50. Psalm 50 is a psalm of repentance. If you look at the breakdown of Psalm 50, and you look at the words that David, the prophet, and the king chose when he composed Psalm 50, He actually divided it into three parts. One part is honesty, exposing himself, revealing to himself and to God what he did, what is in his heart, what is in his mind, what condition he is now in. The second part is praise. He praises God because God is there for him. God will accept him back. He knows that no matter how far he deviates, God will be there. And the last part is joy. He has joy at the end, and in fact, if we look at one of the final verses in Psalm 50, it says, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. You have accepted me, God. You have accepted my repentance. And he is joyful for that. He is joyful that God allowed him to come, allowed him to repent and welcomed him back as his son. And there are so many other stories in the Bible, of course, that we know about that. So even Psalm 50 teaches us about joy. One of the best stories in the Bible is, of course, we know the story, the story of Zacchaeus, the man who heard about Jesus and wanted to see Jesus. And if you look at the verse at the bottom there, I actually chose this specific translation because there are different translations, of course, the New King James and the New International Version. It doesn't matter. We're not here to discuss this. But I like this translation because it means a little bit more than the other translations. It says, and he sought to see Jesus who he was. The other translations, although it may seem similar, say, and he sought to see who Jesus was. When you look at it this way, though, and he sought to see Jesus, who he was. Who is this person? Who is this Jesus? What's the big deal? Why is everybody talking about him? Why did the whole city stop when he came? Who is this What is the big deal about this person? I've heard stories, and I've heard people share things, and there's multitudes of people from this city and from elsewhere. I see him, but I want to find out who is this person. And we know the rest of the story. But if you also read the entire story, the the end part of the story, after he repented, after he said, Lord, everything that I have taken, I give back fourfold. That's when our Lord said to him, This day, salvation has come to this house. Before that, he said, come down. But he didn't say anything about salvation. After he repented, after he said, anything I have taken, Lord, I give back fourfold. That's when our Lord said to him, today salvation has come. You are forgiven. You are forgiven, and heaven is open back to you again. Another story, of course, that we all know very well is the parable of the prodigal son. And I'm gonna focus on the last part of the prodigal son. We know the story. But the part at the end, when his father saw him coming from a distance and he told the servants, prepare, prepare the fatted calf, bring the robe, bring him sandals, bring him the ring, because my son who was lost has come back. My son who was dead is now alive. Bring him so we can have a celebration. Celebration because his son came back to him. So the repentance of his son brought him and the entire household joy. The entire household joy. So there is joy in repentance, and each one of us knows that feeling. When we walk into confession, and we come in and it's so heavy, the sins that we're ashamed to talk about, the sins that I can't escape from, the sins that have me almost imprisoned and i i'm I'm afraid to even bring them up or i i procrastinate and not go to confession because just pushing it off pushing it off and it's weighing heavy on me and then we go and we confess and the Buddha gives us the absolution and we walk in uh, sorry we walk out and it's like (sighs) i can breathe again there's that sense of relief that sense of joy that can only come from that heavy weight being lifted off our shoulders and lifted off our hearts. So there is joy in repentance. Anytime we've attended um, a baptism, we should remember that repentance, repentance and confession is a mini baptism. Every single time we confess, we're being baptized again. Every single time we confess, we are being reintroduced into the family of the church. We are being wiped clean. The slate is being wiped clean. And if you notice, if you've attended any baptisms, you know, of course, there's a joyous event. The the is happy, the baby's happy. We even do a procession around the church. The deacons and abuna do a procession around the church for the newly baptized individual. So it's a very, very joyous event, even uh, repentance, which is a new baptism. But there are obstacles. There are internal and there are external obstacles to us feeling that joy. Why don't I feel the joy of repentance? Well, it could be partly because I haven't repented fully. Or maybe because, and forgive me, I don't understand what repentance is. Confession and repentance are two different things. Confession and repentance are two different things. Confession is I am saying the words. Repentance is unchanging. If I say the words of the sins, but I don't change, I haven't repented. I've confessed, but I haven't repented. The absolution that Abunneh gives you is given to you, but based on just words, not on heartfelt change. The word repentance in Greek, Does anybody know what the word change in Greek means? Because repentance is change? It's matanya. The word matanya means change. Come on, we think of matanya, we think of a prostration. And yes, it is. But it also means change. Why? Because when I repent, and matanya is a form of bowing down in in, in repentance to God, I change. I was walking in one direction, and I change. Just like the prodigal son, he changed direction. So the word matanya... Means change, but if I don't repent, I haven't changed. It's easy. I can say yeah, when I did this, when I did this, when I robbed this, or I steal this, stole this, or I cheated on this, whatever. But I do it again. Where's the repentance? Nothing has changed. So some of those obstacles that we face are external. Some of them are internal, and I've mentioned a few of them. The biggest one, the biggest one, and the scariest one, is complacency. Complacency. Unfortunately, and this is human nature, when we get used to something, we don't feel the need for change. I'll give you a story. This is in the Bible. King David, this is in 1 Samuel, I think. King David, after he had become king, very successful king, has, uh, they've gone to war with so many other nations, and he was the most glorious king of Israel at that time. And the Bible says, There came a time, and it says exactly the time of year, there came a time when kings went out to war. See, they didn't war in the winter. They waited till the springtime when it was easier. They didn't have to worry about the weather. They didn't have to worry about the cold. They didn't have to worry about being in the mountains where there might be snow and ice. So they waited till the spring when it was easier to travel and easier to invade cities and countries. So it says in 1 Samuel... David, when the time came for kings to go to war, didn't go to war. He chose to stay back. He chose to stay back. He said, You know what? The generals and the other people, they can go to war for me. I'll stay back. And they're gonna come back and give me a report every so often. I'm gonna leave it up to the other people. What happened? He stayed back. And one morning, he was walking on his balcony and he looked over the balcony. Who did he see? Bathsheba. And we know the rest of the story. He wanted her, committed adultery, and eventually committed murder to hide it. So complacency, this excuse of not doing something can be very dangerous. When we're complacent about our repentance, we're delaying the joy of repentance. When we're complacent about repentance, we're delaying our re-entry into the kingdom of God. It's a mini-baptism. It's as if you're saying, you know, you know what? I don't want to be rebaptized again. I don't want to be cleansed again. I don't want to be reintroduced as a son or daughter of God again. So complacency is very, very dangerous. There's a beautiful verse in Psalm 16, verse 11, that says, You will show me the path of life, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your presence which means joy comes being in his presence. If we haven't repented, we are not close to God. Why were Adam and Eve exiled from paradise? Because they sinned. They were in God's presence. It says that Adam walked with God. He was intimately related to God, in the the presence of God. But when he sinned, God said, I cannot be in the same place as sin. You need to leave, Adam. You need to leave, Eve. I cannot be in your presence. So when we are in the presence of God is when we feel joy. If we have sinned and we haven't repented, we can't be in God's presence. So therefore, there is no joy. Also in James verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, we all know the story, count it all joy when you enter into various trials. Why, God? Why is suffering... But why can joy come from suffering? It doesn't make any sense. Suffering implies I'm not happy. Suffering implies I'm in pain. Suffering implies that there's nothing to to be joyful about. Yet, St. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's what I call an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. However, if we look at it spiritually, Of course it makes sense. The question is, why? Why does it bring me joy? Now, another trivia question. Who wrote more books in the Bible than anybody else? St. Paul, how many? 14, 14 epistles. He wrote 14 more than anybody else in the Bible. You know, the New Testament has 27 books. 14 of those were written by St. Paul. A few of those he actually wrote when he was in prison. He wrote some of the books, believe it or not, while he was in prison. And he was happy about that. There's one epistle in particular, which biblical scholars call the epistle of joy. Does anybody know what epistle that is? The epistle of joy. Philippians. Philippians is the epistle of joy because he mentions joy so many times in in this particular epistle that has been dubbed or been called the epistle of joy. There's one verse in particular where he says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. So what he's saying, you've been given a gift. God has given you a gift to suffer for him. Now, a gift to suffer? What does that mean? Why would I, why would I, why would I consider that a gift? Actually, it is a gift. If you look at it from a spiritual perspective. See, our problem is we look at everything earthly. We compare everything in the context of what the world would give us. A gift on earth is joyful. A gift on earth means something that pleases me. But a gift in heaven has different implications. So why is suffering a gift? Why does it say in Philippians, it has been given to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. You are fortunate, St. Paul says. you lucky he gave you a gift to suffer for him. How can that be the case? It's also been said that our chains are God's gains. Our chains are God's gains. What does that mean? Simply speaking, suffering brings us closer to God. If we look at it from that perspective, we should be joyful for suffering. We've heard many, many stories in our church history, in the Sineksar, even in modern church history, about people who took suffering and accepted it as a gift from God. Used to call cancer because that brought him closer to paradise. It was through the suffering that he prayed more. It was through the suffering that he called upon God more. It was through the suffering that he focused on God more and forgot everything else. All of a sudden, I'm focused on my illness. All of a sudden, I have to stop worrying about my mortgage, my tech. I'm not saying don't pay it. Don't get me wrong. You have to pay your mortgage. But the point is, the focus became more on God and more on his relationship with God. Hashem, al marad is considered a gift. Our suffering is considered a gift if we look at it spiritually. Now, I'm not wishing any illness or bad on anybody, God forbid. But I'm saying if it does happen, We should consider it a gift from God. We can consider it joy. I want you to look at that last sentence that is written there. Relationship with God is not cause and effect. Many of our problems come from the fact that we expect that our relationship with God is cause and effect. I pray, he gives. I come to church, he gives me. He blesses me. I take communion, He blesses my children. We expect that the relationship with God is, if I give something to God, he will give something to me. That's not how it works with God. Our relationship maybe with other people is cause and effect. I give you, you give me. But with God, it doesn't work that way. He's giving all the time. He gives all the time. How do I see it? Am I seeing it from the perspective of what makes me happy or what makes me joyful? That's why we don't understand it. So our relationship with God is not cause and effect. It also says in the Bible, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But pay attention. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. Le, that it may bear more fruit. Yeah, and even the plant that brings forth fruit, he makes it suffer a little bit. Le, to bring forth more fruit. Because the fruit that you, that, you, that you are bringing forth through the Holy Spirit, God wants more and more and more from you. He knows what you're capable of bringing forth. He knows that you, as a branch in him, are capable of bringing forth this amount of fruit or that amount of fruit. Don't cut yourself short or sell yourself short. God knows what can be done for you, what can be gotten from you. So he will say, you know, I know what he can do. I know he's capable of more. I know he's capable of more prayer. I know he's capable of a closer relationship with me. So I'm going to pinch him a little bit because I love him. Because I want him to come running to me. Because I want him to love more. I want him to share me with other people more. To speak about me more. To preach to other people about me more. I want him to resemble me more. That's what God does. There's a a, a verse in Malachi, where is Malachi in the Bible? Trivia question, where is Malachi in the Bible? New Testament or Old Testament? Old Testament, where? Last book in the Old Testament. He's one of the prophets. Last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. Chapter three, verse three. There's a verse that says, and he sits, he meaning God, he sits as a refiner of silver. It says this about God. God sits as a refiner of silver. There was a story once that I read about a group of women who were in a Bible study together. And every day, or every time they met, they went through a different chapter in a a book. So one day, they were reading the book of Malachi, and they came across this verse. And one of the women read the verse, and it said, and he sits as a refiner of silver. And all the other women looked at her, or they looked at each other, and they said, does anybody know what a refiner of silver does? Nobody knew. So one one woman said, you know what? There's actually a jeweler in my town who does these things. He refines gold and silver in his shop. So next time we sit together, I'll have an answer for you. I'm gonna go visit him and ask him what he does. She went to his store and she met with him. And she said, we're studying the book of Malachi and we came across a verse that describes God as a refiner of silver. You refine silver. He said, yes, I refine silver. And he said, and she said to him, What do you do? How do you refine the silver? He said, it's very simple. I get the silver when it's first mined. I buy it and I take it in the back of my warehouse and I heat it. Why? Because I have to burn off the impurities so it can become more pure. And she said, okay, and then what? He said, and then I burn it more. And she said, okay, and then what? He said, and then I burn it even more. She said, how many times do you burn it? He said, I burn it and burn it until I've gotten all the impurities off. And the most important part comes at the end. And she said, what's the most important part? He said, when I've gotten 99.999% of the impurities out, I'm looking at the silver and it's almost 100% pure. And I put it over a very, very low flame. And I cannot take my eyes off of it. Because if it goes too much, it'll ruin it. And she asked him a very simple question. So how do you know when you're done? How do you know when you're finished refining the silver? He said, ah, that's the easy part. When I look at the silver, if I can see myself, I'm finished. That's what it means when he's a refiner of silver. He refines every single one of us through suffering until when he looks at each one of us, he sees himself. That's what's meant by that verse as a refiner of silver. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your, word, your reward in heaven. God is a physician. He is a spiritual physician. We, says, we say this in, in our prayers, the physician of our souls. He knows what kind of medication we need. He knows that I need a particular illness. And he knows that you need a particular financial problem. And he knows that you need a particular problem with your family. And he knows that over there, you need a problem at work. Every single one of us has a prescription that works for us and for nobody else. And through that, God refines us. So when he looks at us, he can see himself. That's why suffering is joy. That's why suffering is joy. And finally, salvation. Salvation, of course, is self-explanatory. What do we want at the end? We want salvation. We're here, why? We come to church, why? We participate in the sacraments, why? We call ourselves Christians, why? We raise our children as Christians, why? For their salvation and for our salvation. The word economy of salvation is a word that you may have heard before or the term that you may have heard before. Basically, it means the plan, the plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation. When God created Adam and Eve, it wasn't his plan that they would leave, that they would sin and be exiled. But when they did, a plan went into place immediately that he had to be incarnate and he had to go through the passion and he had to be crucified and he had to resurrect and ascend etc etc there was a whole plan of salvation that was in place when adam and eve were exiled that's mentioned in chapter 2 of genesis there's a very interesting verse that comes in chapter 6 verse 3. in that verse It says, God said, my spirit will no longer dwell with man. The Holy Spirit, God, the one that you breathed into Adam and Eve and gave them life. Sorry, I have to take it back. Because he's sinful. So my spirit will no longer dwell with him. It took centuries and centuries and centuries for that to come to pass, that we would receive the Holy Spirit again in Pentecost. And each one of us, as I said earlier, gets it during our baptism. When we were created, we were created like a sterile container. If anybody works in science or healthcare or anything like that, you know that sterile means there is no impurities in it. It's perfectly pure. But when we sinned, it's like you opened a sterile container to the atmosphere, to the world, and all of a sudden, it's no longer sterile. I can tell you, anybody here who's in healthcare or has been through medical training, that one of the hardest lessons to learn is to maintain a sterile environment when you're working. The scariest person I encountered when I was in medical school was the nurse that taught us how to stay sterile. Because if you didn't do it, you were exiled from the operating room. Just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the paradise of joy. How many times I recall being yelled at from the nurse who told us, nope, you did it wrong, get out. To maintain that perfect sterility. So what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that sterility. They were now, Not pure anymore. There was wickedness. There was evil that entered into the world. Centuries and centuries later, the incarnation. And we were saved. The Savior came. That plan of salvation came to pass. And our Lord was born. And he brought forth new joy. Why? Because salvation, which Adam and Eve had guaranteed and they lost, is now open to us again. Through St. Mary. And through her Um, through the incarnation of our Lord. Now, I'm going to take a couple of minutes here just to go off on a very small tangent because I think it's very, very relevant. We call St. Mary the Theotokos. What does that mean? What does Theotokos mean? Mother of God. Mother of God. We don't call her anything but the Mother of God. She is the Mother of Jesus, yes, but we don't call her that. The Orthodox Church makes it very, very, very clear that she is the Theotokos. And I want the youth to pay attention to this, in particular. This is very, very important, because unfortunately, there are many things online that if you look at the word Orthodox, you get confused, and you think Orthodox means Oriental or Coptic Orthodox? No, couldn't be further from the truth. There was a heresy many, 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 many years ago that happened... I think in the 4th century the 5th century. Another trivia question. What three councils do we mention all the time in our church? The 318 assembled at? Nicaea. The 150 at? Constantinople. And the 200 at? Ephesus. Ephesus is the one I want to focus on. Why? Because a heresy came about from a man named Nestorius. Nestorius. Nestorius, by the way, was a patriarch. A pope. A patriarch. And he came up with a heresy where St. Mary was not the mother of God. We don't have time to go into the details, but that was a big heresy. And the church fought that. And the church excommunicated him because the church believes that St. Mary is the mother of God. Why do I bring that up? Because lately on the internet and on YouTube and Facebook and all these other places, there has been a lot of talk about this. And sometimes people come across and we look at them and say, oh, he looks like he's one of us, so he's probably teaching us the correct faith. There are people out there that look exactly like our bishops, and they'll talk, and you may recognize this face because there are many people like him online, who talk about God, and they talk about Jesus, and they talk about salvation, and talk about the Orthodox faith, but they are absolutely not our faith. This particular bishop, he calls himself the bishop, but there's many many others like him, I'm not picking on him, I don't know him personally, is a member of the Assyrian, not the Syrian, the Assyrian church, in the Arabi Nestor, the Nestorian church, which is this heresy. So he is a member of the church, and everybody like him, is a member of the church of this heresy, but when you watch him online, you think he's an orthodox bishop? You say, "Oh, can I be no?" No, that's nice. But Adam and Eve were tricked too. Don't look at the outer surface; dig deep. So I bring this up because I know that a lot of you have been following this stuff lately. Now I'm going to move a little bit fast here because I know that I've gone over time and I don't want to waste anybody's time. So why do we not have joy? We've talked about what joy is. Now help me understand why don't I have joy? And what can I do about it? It's nice to diagnose a problem, but if you don't give me treatment, it's useless. You don't go to a doctor who says, yeah, you have high blood pressure. Good luck, bye. No, but what am I gonna do about it? You, you need some treatment, you need some medication. So how do I get the joy back? First of all, we don't do what the Samaritan woman did. Initially, anyway. What was the Samaritan, doing woman? Uh, uh, the Samaritan woman doing? She was going, figuratively speaking, from well to well. A well, it was the same well physically, but every time she went to a well, she was looking for something different. She's looking for satisfaction where here. She's looking for fulfillment where here. And as we mentioned earlier, she's looking for happiness. She's not looking for joy. He's not looking for joy. He's looking for happiness, happiness. And in fact, when Abuna says in the liturgy, "Fill our hearts with joy." and gladness. Joy and gladness, which means they're two different things. It's not wrong to be happy. In fact, God wants us to be happy. But it doesn't last long. That's why he says, fill our hearts with? Exactly. So joy comes first. Fill our hearts with joy and gladness. And when we don't find joy, when we feel empty, what do we end up doing? We look for it in so many different places, like the Samaritan woman. She was looking at it in well after well after well. And what do we living in the 21st century in America and the rest of the world do? We look for joy and satisfaction and fulfillment online by Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, you name it. We're looking for satisfaction, but it doesn't last. So when you need something and it doesn't work, what do you do? You do more after that. You get temporary relief, it doesn't work, you do more. You get temporary relief, it doesn't work, you do even more. You know what that's called? Addiction. You do something, it gives you momentary relief, but it doesn't last. So next time you give it 10 minutes, it doesn't last. Next time you do it 20 minutes, it doesn't last. Next thing you know, your screen time is 6, 7, 8 hours of social media. Why? Because I'm looking for joy in the wrong places. I'm getting happiness, and in my mind, I think it's joy. But it doesn't last. If you have joy, you don't need to get, getting fulfillment from the rest of the world. And we get it from all these different streaming services and so forth. So, what has happened as a result of that? The whole world is now apathetic. The whole world is now looking for a sense of relief. Rather than getting it from God, we're looking for a quick fix Papa Xanax. Give me an antidepressant. Give me a drink. Give me something to give me, to make me forget. Make me forget about this lack of joy. To fill me, to satisfy me. Because maybe if I numb my mind, I won't realize it anymore. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. You know, the prescription rate of antidepressants, since when I started about 20 years ago till now, has gone up 400% in America. 400% increase in the rate of, of uh, antidepressant uh, prescriptions. Now, I'm not saying that these things are wrong. They're there for a reason. There are people that need them. But we have to be careful that we're not doing it for the wrong reasons. So Rabbi a rejoice. Rejoice always and pray constantly. Give thanks for this is the will of God. Okay, Arab, I want to do your will. You're telling me to rejoice because this is your will. How? How? How do I do this? I don't understand. You want me to be joyful? Okay, show me how. It's very smart church provides us with a very, very, very simple solution. Because guess what? There's only one solution. There's only one solution for joy. And it comes from here. It doesn't come from the world. Anybody know what that word means? It's a Coptic word. Anaphora. What does anaphora mean? You may have heard the word used, but you don't really understand what it means. Where do we see the word anaphora? In Otes. Right? What does that word remind you of? Anyone know where it is? Where is that joy? Is that joy because we're with him, or are we? is our heart not in it? And I'm using the Uddes as one example. The life with God is an unaffordable. Everything was God lifts us up. If you look at all his important events in his life, everything was not here, but here. Do you remember when the angel appeared and the star appeared? Where was the star? Up. Do you remember the, the Sermon on the Mount? Where was the sermon? On a mountain. <تصفيق> التجلي. التجلي where and when he ascended he ascended and everybody had to look up the disciples had to look up فربنا joyful but God is lifting us and telling us it lifts us up and it says, God wants us to go up. That's what the church is doing. It's teaching us to raise our hearts up to God. And you've seen, you've probably seen that word that's circled in red there. It says, in anafura, that means the liturgy. Okay, so now what do I do? To him, I have to go. But how do I do it practically? How do I do it practically? And the, and the gospel says, Eh? Abide in me, and I in you. Yani abide in me and I in you. Z. How can I abide in God and God abides in me? So, hey, what are we breathing? Air, what's the air comprised of? Gases, what kind of gases? Oxygen, nitrogen, and a few others. But which one do I need to live? Oxygen. So I am abiding, if we turned off all the oxygen, if we sucked all the oxygen out of church, what would happen? We'd pass out and probably die, right? So I have to abide in the oxygen. But so what's running through my veins and my arteries? Blood, and what's that blood carrying? Oxygen. So I am abiding in the oxygen, and the oxygen is abiding in me. If either one of those is not there, there's no life. So when God says abide in me and I in you, that's what he's saying. Come in my presence and let my presence be inside of you. Well, presence is inside of you, it's in the When I'm alone, I'm alone. Do I lift up my heart to Him? That's what He says, when he, what so He means when He says, Abide in me and I in you. Our focus has to be 100% on God. And I'm going to finish with one last story. I'm sorry, but it's a nice story. This is an icon, actually it's not in the Coptic church, it's in the Russian Orthodox Church. It's called the Icon of Unexpected Joy. And the story goes like this. There was a man who used to go to confession all the time. And he used to confess his sins and immediately go back and do the same sins again. Over and over and over. And finally, one time when he was praying, Saint Mary appeared to him from the icon Withholding Jesus in her hand, and Jesus in her hand, his hands were bleeding, and his feet were bleeding, and he had blood coming from his forehead. And St. Mary said to him, Your sins will not be forgiven. Why? Because you're not repenting. You're confessing, but you're not repenting. What do I do? You have to change your life. And he said, Halas, I'm going to change. And St. Mary, in, in, in this vision, turned to Jesus the child that she was holding, and said, I am interceding for him. Please forgive him. And in this vision, our Lord said, no, I'm not going to forgive him. I'm not forgive him because these wounds are because of him. Come on, the story is a much, much, much longer, but the point of the story is finally he repented, and finally, come on, our Lord forgave him his sins, and he moved on. But this joy came from what? From the repentance. The joy came from him deciding to change his life. The joy came from him realizing that his life in the world was not going to give him salvation. That the only way he could get salvation was in the church and through the sacraments. Through communion, through repentance, through confession, through so many different things. That's what's amazing about the story. And the last slide I have here is if you don't understand anything that we said, at least remember this, that the word joy comes from Jesus first, others second, yourself last. If the focus is backwards and it's on me, I am never going to have joy. I may have happiness because I want, I want, I want. But if, if I don't come, if I come last, and it's Jesus, others, and then yourself, you will have joy. Glory be to God forever.